and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I will be finishing up my look at Mary McCarthy's Cannibals and Missionaries, published in 1979. This will also be my conclusion to Mary McCarthy. Uh, we have gone through all of her fiction except for a few short stories, which I just sort of skipped over. So that will be the end of this series. This will be the end of that, this series on Mary McCarthy. But I will be continuing with my broader series, 20th Century Girls, with a short series on Jane Bowles that will I'll begin in the next um, in the next episode. There's only one volume published by Live America that has all of Jane Bowles' writings, and in fact, about a third of that, or maybe even a little bit more than a third of that, is is, short, is letters, mostly between her and and Paul Bowles, her her one-time husband. Uh, I don't know if I'll read those letters. It might be a very, very short series. I might, it might just be four episodes or something where I, I just look at her fiction because I'm not sure if the letters are worth digging into. But we'll, I'll look at them. I'll, I'll read through them and, and, and make the decision when the time comes. At most, it'll probably be a six-part series. Um, and then we'll see where we go. I think Shirley Jackson will be after that. So I've been really looking forward to, to that series and... and a um, little bit back back home to, for me. I've been in, in a little bit uncomfortable territory uh, in this series, especially with uh, uh, Mary McCarthy and, and Jane Bowles is kind of the same thing. It's it's not what I'm used to to reading, and and it's it's you know been a challenge. It's been a bit of a slog actually, especially at the end part of this Mary McCarthy series. But anyways, that's what's coming up. So I'm going to stick with 20th Century Girls format for a little bit longer at least. We'll see how long I. I can hold it up. Um, so anyways, we're looking at cannibals and missionaries. Uh, this novel is about a hijacking. Uh, the, a hijacking by an international crew of terrorists who take over this airplane that's go, trying to go to Tehran on a kind of fact-finding human rights mission. This was before the Iranian Revolution. This is set before the Iranian Revolution. So it's, it's the Shah's government that are investigating. Uh, but they get hijacked. And... During the hijacking, it's revealed that there's a lot of money on the plane in the form of priceless works of art because the people in first class are, are art collectors. And so the hijackers begin to squabble internally about what their future plan is. They don't seem to be very ideologically um, consistent. They don't have a really clear plan. They end up redirecting the plane and, and taking over a helicopter and, and moving to a polder, which is the reclaimed um, ocean land, like land from, from oceans reclaimed by the Dutch and they take over a, a, a farmhouse there and that's where they kind of bunker down for the siege. We meet three main groups. We meet the, the main mission, these people in the economy class. They're the ones who are going to, to Iran to, uh, to investigate the human rights issues. They're representative of kind of the liberal mainstream. Of society, then you have the billionaire class and the first class, who we don't see much of, we don't hear much from, but they, you know, they're 
they're kind of representing the ruling class. And then we have the terrorists, we got the radicals. And that's, of course, a group that Mary McCarthy is very, very interested in writing about and thinking about. She's done it throughout her career. And uh, she never lets up on them, frankly. She always sees them as contradictory, weak, um, basically contradictory, I guess, her main criticism of, of, of leftists. Or she, she liked to, I think she did this better in her earlier works, where she really tried to look at the tension between living or, you know, having radical ideas and living a bourgeois life. Um, this, these people are a little bit different because they are terrorists, essentially, and they are doing something, they're acting, but they come off just as bumbling. Um, I talked in the last episode, I think this, if they were to film this, it would almost have to be a comedy. It, it almost works more as a comedy because the, 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 the victims are bumblers, the millionaires are irrational and capricious and only care about these works of art. The terrorists don't get along, they have a lot of conflicts, they're, they're kind of bumbling too. The whole situation is kind of farcical, it doesn't seem to have a, a clear end. In fact, by the time you know, in the first two thirds of the novel, we see they basically move the plan from making demands, holding, you know, by holding these people hostage to basically trying to get these works of art and holding them hostage for what purpose? It's not clear that they're a better hostage than these um, people. And you can't sell them, right? They're priceless, priceless works of arts. They're Cezanne's and, and, and Michelangelo's and things like that. They're really, really. Um, I think a lot of them are Cezanne's. So it's just like you can sell them. I don't know if there's, I guess there is a black market for art. And then the whole last part of the novel, the part I'm going to look at today, it ends up being kind of a conversation about art and art's meaning and the, the role of art in society and things about reproduction and access. And it becomes more of an essay, really. And I want to say this, it's becoming clear to me that going through this, cannibals and missionaries and birds of America Less so her earlier novels, I think, but this has this exists in her earlier novels as well. It's almost like she has an essay she wants to write, or a series of essays. Like if you were to take Birds of America and Cannibals and Missionaries and pull out the interesting arguments she's making, the fascinating conversations she's having about about art and socialism and the Vietnam War and and religion at times and vegetarianism and. Uh, you know, you know, our missionaries, imperialists, these kinds of questions, they're, they're side discussions. They all would be really, these would be fascinating essay collections, I think. But Mary McCarthy wanted to write novels. Um, now, she certainly was capable of writing essays. She wrote a lot of nonfiction. But for whatever reason, she wanted to write these out as novels. And they don't feel like novels. They feel like vignettes tied together very loosely. Um, especially Burns of America. Cannibals and Missionaries at least has this hijacking plot. But still, it's just all these different conversations peppered throughout. And you can pull them out, and they're all like, if you're just to read these, these conversations, you'd think, well, that's a really interesting debate or a really interesting discussion. That'd be like a great essay. But that's not what we get. We get a novel. When we're tr I have to kind of evaluate this as a novel, and it doesn't, it doesn't really work for me that way. So that, that's my kind of overall feeling here. And then what we end up with is characters who do things or engage in conversations because Mary McCarthy wants to talk about something, not because it seems natural for the character or natural for the situation they're in, right? I have a hard time believing people in this situation would would have the time. I mean, they're very chatty. They're always talking, you know, despite having a gun to their head, right? 
and they just like, oh, let, let's just chit chat about art, or let's just chit chat about the cannibals and missionaries pro missionaries problem. We'll get to that, and it shows up in chapter ten explicitly. So I don't know. I, I think Mary McCarthy is trying to do some interesting things, but it's all kind of artificial. And I think it would have been better maybe at, if you just kind of wrote these as essays. But then it wouldn't be in this volume, right? The, um, this, this collection by the Library of America is, is collecting McCarthy's fiction. Um, and now I kind of want to read her nonfiction, actually. If, if anything, these final novels have convinced me is I really do want to know more clearly what she thinks about some of these issues. Because in the course of a novel, they become debates, they become discussions. And you don't always really see her really put her foot down. And, and that would be really interesting to see in her, in her other, you know, in her nonfiction writing. So anyways, uh, in the previous two episodes, we've read through chapters one through nine of Cannibals and Missionaries. And basically, we, we meet the characters. We have the hijacking. We learn the motivation of the terrorists. They end up settling down on this polder. And that's kind of where we left off. And as we're going to see, Mary McCarthy doesn't really have a way to come finish this novel. I don't think she knows how to resolve the, the siege, doesn't know how to resolve the, the, the hijacking, the main plot line, because I don't think that was ever her goal was to do that. And I don't think she's really expertise in doing that. So she just blows everything up when she gets, it, it seems like she ran out of things to say and she blew up the situation because she didn't know how to get out of it. Like I said last time, it's very much a, it's kind of a Stephen King sort of ending. You know, I, I think Stephen King's endings are great. I think the criticism that he doesn't have good endings is totally wrong. It's just his endings tend to be, you know, you blow up everything because he's really good at building characters and, and, you know, but his plots tend to end with, with destruction, right? And a lot of his adaptations don't really, a lot of the adaptations of his works don't really get that, I think. They don't, the ending isn't as explosive as, as it is in the books ever. But anyways, um, yeah, Mary McCarthy kind of pulls the Stephen King here, I think. So um, yeah, let's talk about the last uh, three, four chapters, um, give some of my final thoughts about this about this novel, and then, then we'll, we'll be done with Mary McCarthy. So in chapter 10, we finally get the list of demands that they kind of were pursuing. It takes us that long. We're over 200 pages into this novel, and we finally get a clear list of, of the demands that, um, that they're after. Um, so first, an astronomic ransom, one and a quarter million dollars have to be distributed among the workers and peasants of Suriname for the return of the helicopter and its crew. Second, immediate withdrawal of Holland from NATO and the breaking of relations with Israel. Third, liberation of all class war prisoners from Dutch jails. Um, and then there's a commentary here that this probably could be resolved because there's not that many class war prisoners in, in the Netherlands. It's kind of an easy demand. Um, and then the final demand that a small helicopter with a one-man crew be supplies to pick up a bundle of tapes containing instructions from the prisoners to their families on how to bring about their release. So the last demand is really about the, the release. So they're, they're very political demands. There's the ransom, of course, but they're really political demands. But as we've already seen, they've already sort of shifted from focusing on these prisoners who become just kind of excess surplus meat that they need to deal with to focusing on getting these artworks because that's really what they, after now, it's not even clear how that fits into the plan because then are they holding the artwork for ransom? Are they going to try to sell it? 
and then it's just they're just become capitalists, right? And and Mary McCarthy is very much interested in this question of the role of art in class. Uh, and, and again, that would be a great essay. It just kind of it seems a weird thing to think about in the midst of the hijacking. Um, so yeah, we get the we get the clear list of the demands. There's a lot in this chapter actually about. Um, about class and the privileges of wealth, in fact. And a lot of this comes out of the fact how puffed up the, the millionaires become when they f f realize that they're the targets of the hijackers now, not these liberal do-gooders in coach. Um, and they, they all do kind of have a common, I mean, they're presented kind of homogeneously. They do have different characters, and, but you don't see much of individual identity. They have names, but that's about it. In fact, listen to this, quote, the collectors groaned in unison. The family had a right to their privacy in circumstances like this. Though no one, of course, wanted his works of art to be handed over to the capers accomplices. The thought that the press by its vigilance would stand in the way was very disagreeable. If one was willing to pay the ransom, that should be the end of it. Press and government should stand aside till the deed was done. Granted, it was breaking the law, but there were times when the law was wrong. It was true that great wealth, even relatively great wealth, got one in the habit of wanting one's own way, whatever the cost. You know, it's not an altogether bad habit to have formed. They were right to feel their hack, hackless rise at the very idea of arbitrary interference in an affair that concerned no one but themselves. The paintings were theirs, so they should be free to dispose of them in any, according to their own lights, end quote. Now, the whole attitude here, I think, is a really interesting, um, you know, commentary on class, that the, the rich just feel they have the special privilege to... They, the, the rules don't apply to them in quite the same way, right? But even more, the, and I think this is what's interesting to Mary McCarthy, is why is this art private at all? Is there a place for private art? And why does wealth want to accumulate works of art in the first place? Um, and that's, that's probably the most interesting thing about this novel, actually, for me, is this question of why, why private art collections? Because it is an issue today, and... You know, public art, funding for public art has declined. You know, I guess it's not like the New Deal days when artists were being hired by local governments and the WPA to paint murals for, for public buildings and things. Those days are over. So that, that days of public art, there's still some, but it's not being funded like it used to be. So artists have to then cater to the, to the tastes of the elite. Right? It's not that necessarily they share those values, it's how they can sell paintings. And then, and then what's the point of art in a private house? Especially great works of art, right? It, it's, you know, and this is something she was playing with, with Birds in America about how can socialism deal with the problem of access to art. Of course, mechanical reproduction makes this a whole lot easier, right? All you need, now you, all you need really is libraries with art books. Right? But there's still something about the, the being in the presence of art, and everyone should have access to that. Right? That's why we have museums, and, and museum rates should be cheap. Then for a long time, like the Met was free for anyone in the country. Right? Now it's just for New York residents, I guess, free. But you go to Washington, all the museums are free. Right? There's this idea that if you make the effort to go see these works of art, they should be accessible to you, to everyone, right? in a democratic way. Right, so how does private art collections fit into that? And then the whole bigger question I think that's in Mary McCarthy's mind is why do the rich want art anyways? Right, there's that scene, and I think it's the very first Iron Man movie where where Tony Stark wants to buy a painting, and 
think Pepper Potts says, like, it's overpriced. You shouldn't buy it. He's like, I need it. I want it. And then when he buys it, he says, oh, just store it. Like, he's not even going to watch it. He just wants to have it. And that that's a really perverse thing, it seems to me. And it's something that she's interested in because art certainly does have a public face and a public role. And that's something that in an earlier chapter, Mary McCarthy acknowledged in the concept of revolutionary art or art for art's sake and all that. In that, you know, rev, you know, what what is what's the role? What's the role of art in revolution? So art does have this public function. So should any art be private at all, outside of like an art book on your table or something like that? But the actual works of art themselves, this is is really really important, I think. And yeah, I don't know if Mary McCarthy has an answer answer for it, but she's really. She really finds these art collectors kind of despicable in their attitude towards these priceless works of art. So let me go on to this passage a little bit just to develop this idea. Um, where that obviously owning a masterpiece was a sacred trust. They all felt that, even Eloise with their pretty, pretty Lorenzens. But how then, but how that trust should be regarded in an emergency ought to lie between one and one's own conscience. If the rich were strong Republicans, this was not because they grudged a fair wage and decent medical care and playgrounds and the rest to the poor, nor even because they believed blindly in capitalism as the best system yet invented for creating wealth and spreading it to the workmen and the small investors, but because they were accustomed to freedom and jealous of having it taken away from them by the government and the prying press. A poor man did not appreciate the value of freedom, never having to, uh, had much. That was a sad fact and often not his fault. So this is the attitude of, of the rich. So what it comes down to essentially is Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth idea. If, if you've ever read Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, the basic idea is like, yeah, inequality seems perverse and, and, and needs to have some justification. It can't be justified just on greed. That's a good, yeah, I agree, right? Inequality needs to have a socially useful function. But what Carnegie says is basically, the rich are the only ones capable of being the caretakers of wealth, right? Which that's instead of democracy, right? You can't trust the mob. You can't trust the masses. So wealth needs to be guaranteed by, by this ruling class. Um, that's, so I agree with Andrew Carnegie that inequality, if it's going to exist, needs to be justified, you know, clearly and convincingly. It's just his, his argument is not very convincing to me. Um, but anyways, um, chapter 10 is a good one. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff here about, about class. And then the second half of the chapter focuses on, uh, well, we learned that the bishop, Gus, is sick. And his sickness is, um, he dies during the night. And, and the hijackers end up shooting him. Like, they, they don't want to shoot someone who's alive. But Gus, who just dies in his sleep, they shoot. Um, that's about as brutal as they can get. They shoot the body. They want to make it look like they're they're serious or something to the, you know, to the governments. But it's also in chapter ten that we get the first explicit reference to the cannibals in missionary problem. And basically, the victims are are doing this as a game. Now, obviously, there's some metaphor here. There's some symbolism. The cannibals and missionaries are people like I think first class are probably the cannibals. The liberals are kind of the missionaries, maybe. Or maybe it's the you know maybe it's the hijackers who are the cannibals, or maybe they're all cannibals and all missionaries. It's all yeah, it's not clear. But they, they start playing the cannibals and missionaries logic problem. And again, the way this goes is you have three cannibals and three missionaries on one side of a river, 
you need to cross over. Uh, but the boat only takes two people. And of course, you need one person to go back on the boat each time. So how do you do this so it's never to have more cannibals than missionaries in any one place? Because if that happens, the cannibals will eat the, eat the missionaries or kill them, right? So, and then you lose the game. And there's different solutions to it, and they play it. We actually get a visual depiction of one of these solutions. <clears throat> so it's kind of interesting. But um, there's a debate that comes up about race. And one of the people playing it, I think it's actually one of the, the hijackers, Ahmed, who, who makes this point. And he says, quote, the real problem, he said, was to keep the missionaries from enslaving the cannibals through the technology they brought with them. And the fact that the hostages had not seen that for themselves showed how deeply racism was embedded in their culture. Um, and yeah, that's the problem with the missionaries and cannibals. Problem is the missionaries were agents of imperialism, agents of empire. The cannibals weren't the threat. The threat was the missionaries who basically were projections of empire. And yeah, I'm, not, I'm sure that she isn't the first person to think in these terms. It's a classic anti-imperialist argument. You just, by making people in the colonized world seem to be barbarism, to be barbaric, to be cannibals, to be violent, to be uncivilized, then you justify whatever you, you need to do to control them. Um, so, but anyways, it's a, it's a fun little aside. It's, it's nice because we've been waiting for it in a way for some mention of it and we finally get it. And it's actually drawn out here in one of the solutions that one of the characters makes. But he says it's just a, fundamentally a racist example, right? Which is why I think this has been retold as kind of the like adulterous, uh, the adulterer problem or something there, or, or you can't have too many men with one woman or, or something like that. Or is it, or is it couples? Is it three couples and you need to cross them over? But if ever there's two, you know, something, you know, I don't know. There's some other way of formulating it that, that it, that loses this racist racial dimension, but it wouldn't be as fun in a novel like this. So anyways, that's chapter 10. And like chapter 8, I think a really important thematic chapter. But again, like that's really what these novels are. This and Birds in America are just novels of, of conversations about political and social and, and philosophical questions that Mary McCarthy happens to be interested in. So chapter 11 and 12, the last two chapters before a brief epilogue, I'll just go through kind of quickly because there's... Um, you know, basically at this point, the novel becomes um, about art. And it's primarily about art because they start to transfer these paintings that the collectors have um, into the house. And literally, it becomes a, like this farmhouse becomes a museum of sorts. And much of the last two chapters of the, of the novel are, we see that the, the, the hijackers and the, the victims, the, the hijacking victims, like walking around looking at these artworks and experiencing them kind of openly. And what has essentially happened is this artwork has been liberated and put on display and it become, went from being a private collection to something that's, that's public. So yes, the terrorists did something kind of revolutionary, kind of inadvertently. It wasn't their intention, I don't think, but they ended up doing something kind of revolutionary, which was kind of open up these artworks that were closed off into private collections to the public. Now, what happens at the end is it all blows up. So it, it's, it's for naught. 
So I think it's kind of a mistake what Mary McCarthy does at the last pages of the novel, which is blow this whole thing up, because you do have a revolutionary act here. I mean, it's, you have turned, you have, you have liberated these paintings and, and turned a farmhouse into a, a museum of sorts. Very, very kind of interesting idea here. But, um, so we get the survey of all the different works. I don't want to go into it because there's a lot of them. And Mary McCarthy's obviously interested in these, um, in these works. Especially by chapter 12, the novel really shifts to this different commentary on art. Now, the terrorist plot is still there. It just sort of takes a back seat to this discussion of art. Um, and it just becomes kind of a lame siege, which is always, has sort of, always sort of been. I mean, it's never really been that interesting. This, this is never a thriller. It's never a novel that really piques you in that way. Piques your interest in that way. It's just an excuse for her to talk about art. It seems. There probably could have been better ways for her to do it. Um, in fact, you, you get the sense here that Mary McCarthy literally writes herself into a corner and sort of complains about it towards the end of the, the novel. Quote, there was no solution, Hank thought. And before long, Jerome, or Jerome, he's the leader of the terrorist group, would see that. The women already knew it. Surrender with promise of safe conduct might be acceptable to the authorities, but not any longer to the comrades, he judged from what he had heard. Some, at least, among them were on a suicide course. In his clever planning, admirable, a touch of the German television team and a, and a bore had told him. Jerome had overlooked the time factor. For all concerned, this had gone on too long. Nevertheless, he pondered, if there was no viable solution, there could be an immediate there could be an immediate alternative that would take the edge off their hunger for executions. A substitute could be offered, as in the old story. Instead of a hostage, why not a painting? Unquote. And so he thinks maybe the paintings can be the hostage in a way, which is, is kind of makes sense. And again, this would be something that would liberate the artwork, perhaps. Um, now, I don't know what the legality of it would be, but it's, again, an interesting idea. But I get the sense here that Mary McCarthy feels she's sort of written herself into a situation where she really doesn't know the way out. So basically, two, two or three pages later, you know, one of the terrorists just blows up the house. And that's, that's it. Most of the people die. And most of the, the artwork's all destroyed. And the people are... It, it actually matters less to Mary McCarthy that the people die than that the artworks are destroyed. Because we're given a little epilogue called Envoy, E-N-V-O-I. It's about 10, yeah, about 10, 15 pages or so. And we can see some of the survivors. Eileen survives, Frank, the Reverend survives, Sophie Wheel, the journalist survives, but she gets one of her, loses one of her arms. Um, a few of the terrorists survive. Mostly they, they die, right? Most of the people die, like the Senator dies. And others, but most of the artwork's all destroyed too, and that's the real loss, it seems. And we actually uh, much of this final chapter is Eileen's notes on art, which she apparently took um, at some point during this this siege. And so we have excerpts of her of her journal, like her journal, where she talks about art. And this really seems like Mary McCarthy really wanted to write an essay about the role of public art. And the role of and, and, and wealth and art and this relationship and and it's here and maybe this is things she never quite was able to say explicitly in the novel but now she can so I'll just read a bit of this because it, it you know we, we come back to this question about private art ownership I guess um, 
Quote, isn't that part of the reason that experts, dealers, curators fall into the same bag as collectors? Like them, snobs, reactionaries, materialists. Even poor Warren has an itch for spendy names, pathetic triviality. His specialization means corrupting contact with trustees, donors, etc., as on his journey. Lives high when with his crosses, gets familiar over familiar with butlers, limousines, first class travel, which surely had been presented to Shah and Madame Shah. At home, a church mouse and, and must feel contempt for, contempt for ignorance and most, of most trustees, donors. He faded to a company to view treasures." End quote. So the point here is that, that, that these dealers and experts, curators kind of end up just like these wealthy people because they have to schmooze with the, these rich people and they, they kind of are in that circle. So they're corrupted a bit. And then she goes on, yet perennial association of art and wealth, not wholly explanation of seeming evil effects on art on moral fiber of its devotees. Visual art excites cupidity, desire to possess, also touch, finger. My mother, a trial on Chateau Tours, exclusively enjoys everyone's dream. Strange it should be so. Concerts and stage plays versus uh, different. Communal. Who would want to be sole audience for sympathy on stage play? If no one else in the hall would be sorry for actors and musicians, end quote. So uh, this, this is notes. So they're not complete sentences and there's abbreviations. So it's a bit hard to read. But what she's saying is like, it's a this is an art form that seems to lead people to possessiveness and to want to control because it it's something you get your hands on. An opera, on the other hand, you know, no one wants to have a private showing of an opera in their house. Movie, maybe. Movie makes sense, but not an opera or a stage play. It's just weird and kind of creepy, and it doesn't work. And it's not something you can hold on to. It's not something you can possess. So it comes. I think she's trying to say it comes down to possessiveness in a way. So um, a little bit later in the same these same notes. Are you saying art is good for nothing? In fact, bad, like radium for people regularly exposed to it. Versus bright and clever, but you know better. True. If you judge art by human types, attracted by its aura, you're bound to condemn it. But forget collectors and other parasitic growths on the noble tree. What about works of art, the Parthenon, that has always belonged to the general realm of onlookers, gods, and supposedly, and men? Frescoes in churches and statues standing in public squares, cathedrals, skyscrapers. Whoever commissioned these, cardinals or seagrams or the city fathers, by now they're part of the social fabric. Surely they're art as it was meant to be. Sacred artifacts owned by nobody and by everybody that passes them. A lot of them visible from a long way off, but they can still be trucked away into a cloister or even in an oratory shown to you by an old man. The point is they become assimilated to the whole family of natural objects. Mountains, ranges, harbors, stands of trees that have settled down to live with us, too. Of course they do. Something for human community, their pillars holding it up, but also living members come to seem often as protectors, especially in old cities like lanes and pennants on a Roman house, perhaps represent eternity on account of remarkable endurance. Anyways, they concentrate the mind wonderfully." End quote. So that's the conclusion in a way, is art eventually does take on this, becomes part of the public fabric, right? But more, more recent art has this problem of being a physical object that could be possessed and owned. So I, I think the solution is public art. I think the solution she's trying to get at is is art for the masses now she acknowledges there's problems with this that you know there's art in private collections 
Everyone, not everyone could go to museums. She even talked at one point about putting art outside, which you can't do with paintings, but statues maybe. You know, especially bronze statues, which can be um, uh, you can make casts of, right? You can re re recast re, re them and and put them on like those all those um, Rodans, right? If you go you go to museums, you see all these Rodans everywhere because they made like, hundreds of copies of some of these things. Um, so maybe there's a solution there, but she. You know, it seems she's trying to make a claim for, for, for public art, which I think is a really, really valuable claim. And I would like to, you know, I'd like to see her write an essay on this and, and, and express it more directly. I mean, it's going to be shocking for someone who's trying, who thinks they're reading a book about a, a hijacking and terrorism and international terrorism and the politics of, of the Middle East and things like that. And then you end up in a conversation about art, which is very similar to the conversation we, we saw in Birds of America, which she had written eight years earlier almost. Um, but it is what it is. Um, so anyways, that's Cannibals and Missionaries. That's the last of the novels by Mary McCarthy that I'm going to look at. So overall, I think it's, it's talky, it's meandering, it's a bit contrived, not really a thriller. Um, the tensions are not there these aren't frightening villains they're kind of buffoonist terrorists often some of them are a little scarier than others but by and large they're a pretty banal group i do think the novel works as a satire at times and it, it allows mary mccarthy to do what she does best and that is to engage in these kind of philosophical conversations um, but I, I i sometimes i think maybe mary mccarthy would have been a better essayist uh, than a novelist uh, I think she was best. Her novels were best when she was really looking at the experience, her own experiences and talking about what it was like to be a woman of her class, of her political loyalties in her time, uh, like in the group or, of course, the group, those characters all graduated college the same year Mary McCarthy did, or the company she keeps, which is very autobiographical, or the Groves of Academia, again, very autobiographical. I really liked those works, and I think those are strong novels. Here, everything is, is just so much contrived that it's, it can be hard to, to get through. So I don't recommend this one if you're just going to pick up a Mary McCarthy novel. I, I think there's some better ones to, re to read. But anyways, that, that does it. That's my thoughts on Mary McCarthy. Um, so I'm not sure how many episodes it was. More than 10, maybe 12, 13, 14. So I've been working on her for a while. Um, I do think she's a really, really important writer, and I'm glad I ran into her. And I'm glad I, I know about what she wrote. Um, she might be tough for some people, but I think she's, she's just a really interesting, especially when she's dealing with gender politics, dealing with um, the left, dealing with... Um, even to some of the stuff she has to say about religion is interesting because I think sometimes it's a, it's a kind of a fine line between religion and politics in, in some of her writing. But I really like her gender stuff. That's what really um, excited me when I first picked her up. You know, the company she keeps just blew me away in so many ways. It's such a great, great work. The group blew me away too. And yeah, some novels were harder to get through, but um, yeah, I. A really good good writer and I know she's not as well known as some others but I think that's a shame and I think she should be more appreciated so anyways um, next up I'll be doing starting a short series on Jane Bowles now Jane Bowles only wrote one novel one play and a handful of short stories 
over half of this volume, which isn't very long, it's 600, 700 pages or so. Um, so it's about a third of the length of Mary McCarthy's total writing. About half of that, or more than half of that, is, is unpublished sketches and her letters, mostly to, to Paul Bowles. So I don't know how much of that stuff I'm going to analyze. I'm going to read through it. I read through her novel, Two Serious Ladies, her play, um, and some of her stories. So I will talk about her published work at least, and then I'll decide whether I want to look at the rest or just jump on into Shirley Jackson, which will be the work following that. Haven't decided yet, but we'll, we'll see how they, they look. Um, so that's it for now. If you have any thoughts at all about Mary McCarthy, any at all, if there's anything I neglected to mention, anything I got wrong in your view, anything I, I, I really messed up, please let me know. Uh, I would you know, love to hear from you. So send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave your comment below so the public can, can get it directly. Um, yeah, I'll see you next time. And I'll be beginning my look at Two Serious Ladies by, by Jane Bowles. I hope you free for that. Yeah, I'm making it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hands play. While holding a couple in my arms and others on the way. This chicken's done for a pernest and I'm ready to make